0: I'm Isabel Allen, editor of Architecture Today. Welcome to Women Who Shape the City. This podcast season is produced in partnership with VM Zinc, and you can hear VM Zinc, Celine Van discuss the way Zinc has been shaping the city for the last 200 years in a special podcast that sits alongside this season at architecturetoday.co.uk forward slash podcasts. I'm talking today to Yemi Aladaran, who is an activist an architect, and um, most importantly, a development manager. Um, so, Yemi, that is a great uh, triumvirate of job titles. Tell me, first of all, how you came to be an architect, and then we'll talk about the other two strings to your bow.
1: So, actually, I, I am the first architect in in my family. My parents are both in, in the medical profession. I'm not really sure how I felt fell on architecture, but I do remember in um year 10 when we used to do the uh work generic work experience so it was a lottery at that point and I think I got stuck with Boots the chemist and um, but I had a fantastic history teacher that was also um my form tutor and her husband was um a site manager so knowing that I had a general interest in art and I must have showed some kind of interest in kind of construction. Um, She um, bagged me a week at an architectural practice and on site with her husband. And so I think that's how it all started.
0: And what about the activism? Do you think that went hand in hand? Or do you think it took you a while to realise that your desire to change the world was part and parcel of your (laughs) architecture
1: practice? I think I have always had a kind of innate interest in kind of social justice and activism, but knowing where and how that would, um, where I would direct it, uh, has come kind of organically.
0: So you started off, didn't you, in, in practice with May and yes. Barbara Weiss, a very distinguished record. Did they think you were kind of crazy when you, um, what's the phrase? Is it Gamekeeper? poacher turned game thinker <laughs> when you became a client
1: oh I'll probably start with Alex Ely actually because he was uh, I remember we were at uh, I think it must have been an LFA uh, event and um we were catching up and he said would I consider coming back to May so he was poaching <laughs> and I said that actually I was thinking about going client side and he said oh you would be perfect at that and um illustrious Claire Benny was in the room, so he marched me over to, to Claire, and uh, Claire was, has been actually very instrumental in guiding me because she took a, a similar path from kind of uh, architecture as an associate to then moving on to to Peabody. So, um, she has been a great um, support to me, as well as some some others that actually really really encouraged me <laughs> to to make the jump.
0: You talk about setting out to find the magic in the mundane, which mm. was a lovely phrase. Some misinformed people might say that the work you're doing now does sound rather mundane. Have you managed to find the magic in there? And if so, what are those moments?
1: I think before transitioning, as you say, client side, it was at May and then Barbara vice' Architects, and I spent seven years at BWA, and that's where I learned in a very practical. Way the craft of architecture, as well as the fact that um, the process of designing and making was a very small piece in the puzzle when trying to deliver a very successful um, project. And um, being able to successfully administer a construction contract was where I started to see that I could make the most impact. And, like, so I'm, I'm not sure many of my architect colleagues would share my passion for contract administration, but it didn't take me long to realize that no matter how grand. The desire and fantastic, the design. You know, for it to be realized, so many other things had to happen successfully. So, money and project financing are the key things that I often feel that architects speak a different language to their clients on. And the next thing was, um, I guess, relationship building, specifically with those that are physically building the thing. (laughs) So the importance of that relationship, building trust so the process can be collaborative. And so they buy into um, what you're trying to deliver and you can work to, to deliver together. And for me personally, I love being on site and it's where I learn the most and see things coming together. So maybe to build on that a a little bit more, my, my initial adventure from private practice was to the Housing Association. And that really did come out of a result of me wanting to zoom out. Beyond the individual one-off houses to housing, and I I did learn a great deal of um, really tangible information and had progressed, you know, into, from running my own projects, but then as an associate, being involved in the inputting of running a practice, but there was always something that was niggling away. At me um, and making me restless, and I I became more interested in the, um, or should I say, more aware of the inequalities in the sphere of housing, gentrification, the stripping away of identities and certain communities. Grenfell also happened, <laughs> and uh, and as I said, always had a quite a strong interest in public service and social activism. So um, there's definitely a, a lot of magic. <laughs> I think in in the work that I'm doing at the moment.
0: And do you think there are enough people with your kind of passion and zeal and skill set working in the public sector and for housing associations?
1: Yeah, so I think at this point, it's probably also good to, to mention public practice, actually. I think it's really apt. So I would say that there isn't currently... But I think that a lot of architects have immense skill that they could bring into um, the sector, and I think we're starting to see more and more of those transitions happening. So with, with public practice, I think for for quite a while, I had uh, admired the ambitions of the programme since since the first cohort of associates were announced, and since then I've been following the development of the program with great interest and they have been absolutely blown away by the positive impact it's having across local authorities. Um, And I now say that I was quite keen to be part of um, the public practice movement um, which is improving the quality and equality of everyday um, spaces by ensuring that local authority planning and development departments are better resourced with a wide range of skills so they can achieve their ambitions so i think it's a growing it is a growing transition of Lots of architects <laughs> moving into housing associations and local authorities, yeah.
0: And and what would you say are the biggest obstacles you face in trying to bring about the kind of change in terms of equality and quality? Is it
1: a lack of resources? Is it inertia?
0: Is it a lack of imagination?
1: I think when it comes to a certain scale of project, there's just so many people <laughs> involved. And I think also when you come to working in the public sector, there are of course, lots of checks and balances um, and things can get lost in process. Now that I am in the public sector, actually, I, I don't think you know there's any inertia there at all. I, I guess I can only speak for Enfield and the Meridian Water Team, but um, the, the pace of working is incredible. And there's so many passionate, people in the team and actually lots of people from private sector as well as the public sector so it's a really really um, nice mix there and i think in that what we then get is breaking down of siloed ways of working and thinking and building that capacity where you're starting to get a real diversity of thought so i think it's the openness local authorities that are open to doing things differently. And shaking things up, like like I say often, um, are the ones where you're starting to see a lot of progress?
0: When I was working in housing, I found that the RSLs were so much more radical in the private sector, mm. um, primarily because they had a 100-year business plan, not yeah. a 10-year business plan. <laughs> so actually, fundamentally, they were open to that, you know, basic fact of it might take a bit more time, it might take mm. 10% more to build, but, you know, long-term... Mm. The heating bills will be zero and the people will be happier and, and they could take that on board, which mm. seemed fantastic. But do you think that they are still leading the way?
1: I think it also depends on scale of um, the organisation. So smaller housing associations or um, they, it, that, the risk there of doing things that are, there's a big financial risk in being the, the pioneer.
0: This is Women Who Shape the City, a series of conversations produced by Architecture Today in partnership with Zinc, shaping cities since 1837. You can find out more at bmzinc.co.uk.
1: So I think it, it, it depends. Some of the larger housing associations, I think, most definitely, are, are able to take certain risks that smaller organisations can't. And it's not for a want of trying. But I would say that local authorities, are, I found, in terms of both social sustainability and environmental sustainability, are absolutely leading the way. And a lot of them actually are moving even beyond regulation, which takes a while to to catch up. And that's been really positive to see. And I've been blown away actually by Enfield's stance on kind of the sustainability strategy and what we're trying to achieve there and ensuring that it's a golden thread right from the beginning. So in our employer's requirements through to making sure that we have representatives that at every meeting, what are we doing about X? What are we doing about Y? How can we get betterment here? How can we get betterment there? So I think it's not only having strategies, but actually making sure you're putting um, your your money and resource where um, your, your mouth is and actioning things. And I've been, um, as I say, I've been really impressed by the the sorts of things that I've seen um, happening in Enfield.
0: Well, and of course, the private sector is having to catch up now, isn't it? Because yeah. of the simple fact of not being able to get insurance. And I think... You know, what's been interesting is for years, the public sector has been slightly the butt of people's jokes because it's been so obsessed with accountability and paperwork, mostly because Mm. of the obligation of using taxpayers' money and being seen. But, But, you know, actually now those systems are coming into their own. Mm. Um, And I think it'll be interesting to see whether we see a kind of exodus of of consultants going from a public sector background into private practice now. And um, so I wanted to talk a bit, Yemi, about your unbridled appetite to change the world. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> I know you, you sort of have this position that you you can lead from wherever you are, whether mm-hmm. that's inside or outside. I'm kind of intrigued that you served your time on uh, Reba Council. Yeah. Um, so let's start with that. How did you find that? I mean, that's absolutely being on the inside of the institution.
1: Yeah. I, I think often. I think rightly so, we have to hold certain professional organisations to account, but rather than just um, complaining about it, I'm very much of the opinion that sometimes you have to try and change things from from the inside. Um, And at the point of joining REBA Council, I didn't really know much or take much interest in, in REBA Council because I just thought, well, you get a magazine and you pay a whole load of money and it's too much money i'm kind of starting out in the profession i can't i can't afford that but i was convinced to get involved and it was i mean it's a huge the rib of course is a huge ship to steer and i think that you have to choose um very carefully how how you how you play your your part and so I was also part of the Education Committee, which was a lot smaller and you felt, well, I felt that I could probably channel things a, a little bit more that way. So I think there's so many fantastic people doing lots of good work. And one of the biggest problems I think is with the RIBA is that communication isn't necessarily great. So I think on my first day, when we were doing our um, enrollment or whatever you call it, I was like, why did I not know that the RIBA did all these fantastic things? And probably the criticism is that they're doing too much and there isn't a focus or a set of focuses, which I think doesn't really help the outward appearance of, of what the organization does. They, have of course, got a long way still, still to go, but I think that they are some really, really good people doing lots of work and wanting to, to bring about that change.
0: I wanted to ask you about Paradigm, which yes. is obviously an organization you co-founded. You? Yeah. Tell me what, what made you do it and what it set out to achieve yeah
1: so when we initially started i think it was just having a safe space for black and ethnic minorities to meet and often um, in practice at that time, you were the only black person or one of a few uh, amount of. So even knowing that there were all these other kind of black and Asian and other minority people out there, just having something where you could, as I say, have a safe space, a really supportive space. What really I think was the catalyst was Elsie Arusu, And it, this is again linked to RIBA getting onto council. She really took on the mantle there with support from the likes of Ben Derbyshire, she ran a 2017 um, RIBA 25 campaign to get younger people, people of different backgrounds, women onto council. So that's where we kind of started to see that, oh gosh, there are all these fantastic, lovely other people that we could connect with. And we just thought, how do we keep that going? So that's how it started. It formerly is kind of a WhatsApp group. And then we soon saw that the interest was massive and at the core of everything was about increasing Black and Asian representation within the built environment. And uh, really importantly, it's from education. It's ensuring that we have a fully connected pipeline. So through from getting more people, studying allowing people or supporting them through studies because the attrition rate is terrible especially for black british architects and then also as they progress in their careers into positions more positions of kind of influence and authority so uh, we started about four years ago and i'd say initially predominantly for architects but now we have wider built environment professionals um, involved as well and it's been really fantastic to see the growth see the growth of the organization
0: and what what is the reason for that attrition rate being so high?
1: We had an open mic session during the Black Lives Matter period and we opened it up and heard from some of our members and a lot of them were students. And it was really heartbreaking, really, to hear about some of the um, difficulties they had faced. Um, so some students were... As I say, financially, maybe we're struggling and have to work two or three Mm -hmm. jobs and that coming across as them being lazy and not getting the support they needed from their tutors. We've had reports of, in some cases, when uh, certain heads of courses were told about maybe diversifying the type of architecture that was taught. um, The feedback being that there are only some cultures and types of architecture that are worth spending time kind of researching and and have any worth so i think there's a whole range of issues why why the attrition rate is how it is
0: and are the statistics going in the right
1: direction in that respect no they're they're terrible i think latest figures show about one percent and i'm being very specific here i think of, of architects are black Um, I think a a couple of years ago it might have been 1.5 or 2 percent so actually it's a downward facing trend (laughs) Mm. Um, which isn't isn't great so there is a a lot of support needed there but what we have found is that with students over the last few years there's just been this big uh, uh, I think a large awakening that Look, let's do something about these ourselves. So there are lots of student societies that are formed, wanting to ensure that they've got uh, more representation in terms of who who is teaching them. So I think there's lots of agency <laughs> that has come out over the last few years, and, and students saying, "Well, okay, if this if can't change the if you're not going to change the system, we'll we'll try and change it our, ourselves." So that's been really fantastic to to see.
0: And do you feel a kind of weight of responsibility as somebody who's, you know, developed a profile and found a platform and become a spokesperson? Do you almost feel that you just have to say yes to every invitation and kind of being an advocate becomes a second career or do you see it as a a privilege?
1: No, it's a, it's an absolute privilege and I definitely don't feel <laughs> that I have, to, it's something I, I'm learning, but I definitely don't feel I need to say yes to, to everything. And also it's about sharing the love because there's lots of people now in the sphere doing lots of amazing things. So redirecting sometimes people to others that are doing work so that you're not perpetuating. I think sometimes there, there's a fixation on a couple of people, and that doesn't help when we talk about um representation and hearing from a wide variety, um, yeah, variety of people. So what I do do a lot of is say, well, why don't you speak to this person instead? Or, okay, I'll do that talk, but how about getting this voice in uh, as well? So, and and this is why I talk about leading that you can lead at wherever stage you are without positional authority. I think it's really important that people that have something to say are not waiting until they are given a specific title before they feel that um, their, their voice can be heard. That's something that's really important to to me.
0: And Yemi, how do you view the relationship between the diversity of the profession and the way that the city itself evolves?
1: In terms of kind of my attitude to the city, I think when most people think of architecture, the majority probably think of a um, building, a place or a structure. And I wonder how many people think of people and that building is all good and well but who are we building for um i think we're predisposed as architects to think about physical um form but i've spent the last few years learning how to turn that on its head and focus on on people and how we can make kind of a city or how we can make the city a place where a wider range of people can get involved thrive and prosper and i think a lot of the times that sounds a little bit la da and uh, very aspirational and for me i guess i use my nine to five but also all the extracurricular activities you mentioned as a way of trying to deliver on those things and support organizations that are, are doing that but i absolutely also understand that there's no silver bullet and although architecture can be used as a, a tool to bring about change it's not the change in itself and ultimately I think our cities are manifestations of uh, or is a manifestation of our social values and the cities are unequal because our societies are unequal so but but for me definitely there, there are so many issues at play like you touched on Isabel and it's not possible for any one person to tackle um all of those things but for me um over the last few years i think i've been really focused on the social and economic as ways to bring about the change in, in our cities i just think it's so much more than buildings and architecture and i'm not sure how many architects uh, really um absorb that
0: Yemi Eladran, thank you very much for talking to me today in the next episode, I'll be talking to Claire Benny from Municipal about her mission to improve the standards of the UK's housing and neighbourhoods. Thank you for listening to Women Who Shape the City, a series of conversations brought to you by Architecture Today in partnership with VMZinc, shaping cities since 1837. Visit architecturetodaycouk forward slash podcast to download the complete collection of 80 conversations or to listen to a special episode with Zinc's Celine van Dahl.